So I'm Dustin Stats, and I am the host of Board Game with Education. And I am currently transitioning back to Los Angeles. I was teaching in Taiwan, and I use a lot of game-based learning and gamification methods in my teaching. Um, I'm just when I first decided or realized I could use, or I guess I used games in my lessons from the very beginning. But I I first realized I was applying game-based learning maybe about a year and a half ago when I I played the game Two Rooms in a Boom, and that helped me realize that wow I can I can take games that are made for just like six more than six people, and I can use these types of games in my class. I can modify them for instruction, and that's kind of where where board gaming with education has evolved into providing more resources for teachers and helping them understand experiences from other teachers and how they can also apply game-based learning. Well, my name is Kathleen Mercury, and I am one of the co-hosts of Games in Schools and Libraries. I have been teaching for 16 years, 14 of which I've been teaching gifted kids in St. Louis, Missouri. And teaching gifted kids has allowed me to have a lot of creative freedom in terms of what I do. And I started teaching game design about 12 years ago and started off as a sort of month-long little project to now a semester long uh, mammoth undertaking that of course we don't have nearly enough time for. And in developing the resources for this game design curriculum, I couldn't really find much out there that especially that was appropriate to kids um, who weren't necessarily always interested in teaching in doing game design and also um, making sure that I had the type of information for assessment purposes that as a teacher I needed. And so in the course of developing all of this curriculum, I decided to create a website and KathleenMercury.com, whoo, creatively named, was born. And from there, I shared my resources all over the country or all over the world with people who are using them. And I've been able to, you know, because of that experience and doing that, you know, landed myself on podcasts and now I'm co-hosting podcasts and I share my resources. I do a lot of professional development trainings with um, other educators and others interested in using games in learning situations at a variety of different conferences. And I'm just really excited that we're doing this joint episode together. I think this is really great. Yeah, this is awesome. And I wanted to say too, I remember, I think I stumbled upon your website uh, when I first mm -hmm. started resource or researching about like games and education. And I was kind of blown away with, with the amount of resources there. So I really really like oh, thanks. Site. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty lucky in terms of what I do, where I do it, the support that I have. And I just, I'd been approached by people to publish and you know, book is static and it just sits there. But the nice thing about having the website up, at least for me is if I want to make changes to a document, I can, I mean, it's live and people can download everything, worksheets and PowerPoints and all kinds of other resources and my ramblings. And so it's funny though, because it is mine. So it's cool. Sometimes I open up a document and since it's Google Docs, you know, you'll see like, you know, unknown muskrat or unknown snake. And that's really honestly super dorky and thrilling when I get to see that like, oh, cool, <laughs> people are actually using this. Uh, but also, <laughs> you know, I make changes to stuff to suit me. So if people like think, look at a document, they're like, wait a minute, this is different than how it was before. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> that's because I'm using it. So um, you, by, by all means, download your own copies, make your own copies if you want things in an exact certain way. Because I cannot always promise because, hey, I'm doing it for free, but this is for me too. Uh, but thanks. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely been right. something that has given me a lot of chance to talk with other people. And I think that's especially for this podcast and for yourself too. When you're doing something that's so singular and different, 
And luckily, there's a lot of interest in design thinking and, you know, games in the classroom, game-based learning, game, you know, gamification. There's a lot of interest in that right now. And so I got lucky to sort of like catch like sort of like the start of the wave. And under no circumstances do I consider myself to be an expert in any way. But I do have a lot of experience and I've made a lot of mistakes. And I'm always happy to share those so that people can have a smoother transition into doing this and make it as easy as possible for people to just pick up, take things and go and use them. That's really awesome. When did you first, because you said mm-hmm. you attended a conference, I want to say Something 12 like that, years yeah. ago, is that right? Yeah. When did, when did you first start using games in your classroom or when did you see the, the gap or the, how, when did you see the, you could bridge that gap between games and education? Well, especially for, like I said, teaching gifted kids, you know, my job is to give them complex problems to solve. And games can provide them with a lot of complex problems to solve. And I grew up playing really basic games like Clue and the rest. Clue was my favorite. And at this conference, someone said, this meeting, uh, so every classroom for gifted kids should have Stratego in it. And I'd heard of Stratego, but I didn't really know what it was because I also have three sisters. And so I didn't have war-based games because those were you know, kind of treated like boy games back then. And so in looking into Stratego, I found out about this whole other world of games. And I went to a game night and my very first game night, I got to play Cash and Guns and pandemic and while cash and guns can never appear in my classroom with kids holding fake guns and shooting each other um pandemic was a co-op game and i'd never experienced that before and it blew my mind about how you could have players working together to solve this very complex problem and i thought this is so perfect i mean it exceeded my expectations in terms of what i could expect from board games and it was in the process of playing uh, a game. It's out of print, but it's a p- based on the Powerpuff Girls cartoon called Powerpuff Girls Saving the World Before Bedtime. And I thought, my gosh, my students could design these games, which kind of speaks to my lack of uh, experience in terms of something this complex. I've learned a lot along the way. I've told students, like, uh, you know, if I could talk to the kids five years ago, 10 years ago about how I used to teach this, I'd you know, say, I'm sorry, I've learned so much since then. But that's just the nature of the beast, you know. Um, but having what I want more than anything for my students is for them to be creators, not consumers. I don't care about having them do research and telling me about what other people have done. I'm absolutely not interested in that at all. The only thing I care about is what ideas they have and giving them the tools where they feel empowered to take on big complex challenges where they have no idea of what the final product will be, but that they can build in and learn the skills and confidence that they can hopefully get themselves there that's what I care about because if I can get them to accept that and do that, then they can pretty much take on whatever challenges come their way for the rest of their lives. That's that's really awesome. I think uh, we were talking before and you had mentioned that you have developed your lessons a little bit better. And we were talking about how game design and uh, lesson planning kind of overlaps a lot too. And it's awesome you've been able to iterate that lesson plan and be able to provide stronger lessons to students as you go? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, probably the biggest thing that's helped me is the Stanford Design School's method of prototype development. I went to a design thinking boot camp and the design mindsets that were presented as far as when you're wanting to design something for someone else, like here's how you should think about it. Here's how you should approach it. And it was so different from what I was doing 
but it was just one of those things where it's like, oh my God, this is a hundred percent what I should be doing. And it completely pivoted everything that I was doing. Like, so for example, bias towards action, you know, that instead of just thinking about something, just start doing it or rapid iteration, making prototypes fast and cheap so you can get them on the table so that you can fail quickly, see what works, see what doesn't work quickly. And so you can make more versions of something even faster. Like there's all these different things that I didn't do or that I had kids take a lot more time on and they got a lot more, a lot less play testing in. But now, you know, like light, not lightning fast, but it's designed to keep them moving quickly so that nothing becomes precious and nothing become so sacred that they won't get rid of it. And I think for me as a teacher, that's really helped me and also helped me as a game designer in terms of trying something, getting it out there, seeing what happens, getting feedback on it and making improvements to it as well. So you also use, but you do more like game-based learning from what you said, as far as using like two rooms and a boom. How do you like how do how does it work in your mind in terms of like when you experience a game and how you would use it? Like what other games have you used when it comes to doing that? I think a good example that I use to explain a good game for the classroom or a good uh, game strategy or technique that you can apply is thinking about the students and how they're interacting with the game and how they're getting to that learning outcome. So for example, I talk about taboo and trap words where Mm -hmm. taboo, you have a word and maybe it's apple and you're trying to get your team to guess the word apple, but you can't say tree. uh, I don't know, red or uh, fruit. So you need the, you need your team to guess apple, but you can't use those three words in the classroom. If you're playing that game, you only have one person that's looking at the word and the three words and they're given to them. Mm -hmm. And then everyone else is just kind of, kind of listening the other team maybe is not participating because they don't care where trap words what you have is everyone involved in the learning process and playing the game because Mm -hmm. you have a person that each team gets a word and they they create the words that the other team cannot say so each team when as they get the word apple they're thinking about what other words are associated with apple so for language learning this is really good for for improving their vocabulary and understanding of different words. And then when that person goes up to have their team guess, the other team's listening because they're listening for the trap words that they created. So it's it's about involving as many students in the process of the game or the learning process instead of just taking a game and applying it to the class, but understanding how you can modify it and what works for the learning and what doesn't. Yeah. And I, I always feel like I should use more games myself in, in what I do even. And I don't know if that's ironic or just realistic in terms of like how difficult it can be to sort of find that right experience for what you're doing. One that I was actually thinking about, and this is sort of similar to what you're talking about. Are you familiar with the the new party game called Just One? Yeah, yeah. I haven't played it, but I, I know it. I need, I need to play it because I've heard it's really good. Yeah, well, it's super fun. It's super fun. And in just one, uh, players pick a word off a card. Let's say it's apple, to use that. And all the players, on, and, the, and that person closes their eyes. Everyone else writes one word on a dry erase surface. So teachers because they easily use this in the room with dry erase boards or whatever. But they write one word on there related to apple. And then once all the all the players have written their one word, then you compare them and anyone who matches that word can't, you know, like they basically have to erase their boards. 
So once you eliminate all, you know, repeats of words, then those are the words that the person who's it, you know, has to use to kind of put together what the word is. So, um, and actually, I think I may have misunderstood this. The person who it is, like who gets to guess, they don't, they choose a number. They don't actually pick the main word. I think that's a key important thing, right? So let's say I say number two. I don't know what number two relates to. Everyone else sees the word apple. This probably makes a lot more sense now. And so then if you're it, I don't, you don't know that the word's apple, but you see all these different things. And maybe it's like apple seed and core and poison. And you have to look at all those clues and try to come up with what's this word related to. And so I think there's a lot of ways that you could use this same sort of structure Especially since if you as a teacher have like your the key words that you want kids to like the key concepts, because especially concepts can be really interesting, too, because maybe kids will use a concept. Let's say it's, you know, a chemical element like oxygen. Well, they might pick something that's, you know, related to it from a scientific perspective, from one of the facts. But they might also pick something from like pop culture or some other sort of reference that isn't necessarily like straight from the textbook, but you can get some really, and that can like lead people astray or can lead them right to it. And so I think that's one where, especially if you have a lot of concepts plus two, you've got everybody involved every single time. And I think for a lot of gaming experiences in the classroom, having everybody involved at the same time, really, really matters for success. Right. I think I, I totally forgot. I did just, I just played just one like last about two weeks ago, but, uh, it's, it is a lot of fun. And I think that even when you mentioned that, like maybe they throw in a pop culture reference to get the word and then the team guesses that word because of that pop culture reference, that's going to work in your brain to never forget that word in the future. Yeah, I think that's okay, you know, because the thing too is if they're having fun and you're still like, they're still going to be reviewing, they're still going to be looking at all the different aspects for, let's say the Missouri compromise or whatever, you know, concept that you're teaching, they're still thinking about that concept and what words are associated with it, what ideas are associated with it, and what do they think other people might put down? And so they want to put down something that no one else will say, but maybe also you've got somebody who like, they're just, it's, they come up with one thing and that's what they put down. And even if somebody matches them or not, you still have everybody trying to come up with something related to that topic. So they're all going to be thinking about this word, this concept, you know, as they're, you know, playing this game. And I think, you know, that's great. Another really good uh, review game is actually based on the old school game, go to the head of the class and this was one that I learned back in my student teaching. And it was actually really great. You've got the, the desk set up in sort of a grid. And you ask a question and everybody writes on their paper. And then, but they're, they're paired up. They're going head to head against somebody else. And so you ask a question, everybody writes their answer down. And as soon as somebody finishes, you hold your pen up in the air. And so whoever's pen or pencil is held up first from that pairing is the one who, you know, gets to answer it first. And basically... Whoever gets the answer right moves up a chair and whoever gets the answer wrong moves back a chair. And so you do have the problem that there might be kids stuck in the bottom, stuck in the back, and they never make any traction up from that. So I think handling that well is important. Um, But you do have kids up and moving as well. And so that can add a lot of when people normally do um, when people normally do um, work as far as, um, 
uh, when they're doing like review games and stuff like that, you know, a lot of times it is just a lot of sitting. It does add for some movement in the game too. And so I think that's another structure that can work really well. Right. And I think uh, one thing that Trapwords does, and I like to use this as an example that you mentioned, when you go to the front of the room, you have the students that maybe fall behind. A good game that you can use in the classroom has some sort of catch-up yeah. mechanic. Like uh, like in Mario Kart, where you, the last player always gets the best the best boxes, where the first player just gets like coins or maybe mushrooms, mm-hmm. I think. <laughs> yeah. And then we just did it. We had a professional development day. And uh, in talking with the, the person who's in charge of our professional development committee, she said how she was going to have, they need to do like something on teamwork or some sort of like team building kind of thing. She's like, yeah, we're just going to do minute to win it. We have all this stuff. I said, or you can let me do something. And she's like, you know, Kathleen, we've got everything. I said, here's the thing though. I have an idea for something that I think will work and it's minimal supplies. It's super easy to teach. And I think there's a lot of things you can do with this out, you know, that could be related to the classroom. And and so uh, she's, and I said, I'll take care of it. I'll write it all up. You won't have to do a thing. I'll make all the copies. I'll do everything. And then, then, then she's like, yes. Because the minute to win it, you know, it's all these fun little silly games where you're like holding a piece of dry spaghetti in your mouth and you're trying to like hook rigatoni noodles or big fat noodles, you know, onto the spaghetti. Like there's things like that are, can be really fun about it. Um, but it's just like yeah. standalone little activities. And again, you have that thing where somebody may be performing in front of, you know, other people and they're not comfortable with that. So, and again, not everybody's doing something. If, if the only thing you're asking somebody to do is sit and laugh at this person, I don't, for me, I don't know that that's the best kind of teamwork. I mean, it can be really fun, obviously, but I like it when everyone's involved, like we said earlier. And so the party game Eat Poop You Cat, it's also known as Beautiful Corpse, which has been turned into a box game called Telestrations. Uh, but basically, I taught them that. And Telestrations, the cards have one word on them. And, you know, so <laughs> I wonder what Florida is going to turn into, you know, that sort of thing. But in giving everybody like one line to write like a phrase or a song lyric or a quote, you write that at the top of your paper and then you pass it in a circle, everybody in the same direction. That person then draws what you wrote then they fold over the words and so that all that is showing is the drawing and then they pass it to the next person so then that person has to write a caption for what was drawn and then that person folds down the drawing so all that shows then is their words and then it goes until you complete the full circuit. And so it's really funny, you know, seeing how stories evolve, you know, it can be if people just try to be very direct and you know, like state, you know, concretely the boy is picking up a rock, you know, then maybe that's not so exciting, but if they come up with some sort of funny twist on it and then you really get some crazy twists and turns. I remember one time we played this at board game geeks uh, convention and someone had drawn a bunch of like planets and they drew like a little stick figure and the stick figure just kind of looked a little sad. I don't think it was meaning to, but then the person wrote on there, you're just not happy anywhere. Are you? And I was like, that's like the funniest, like most perfect expression (laughs) to me of like what this can be. And so they played it and then apparently had all these like great discussions about 
you know, how they could use this in the classroom, everything from math reviews where you could like have them start off with the writing and the equation, the kids have to draw it out. And then from there, they have to extract some other type of mathematical um, idea, um, you know, communications. You can have kids doing this in terms of like storytelling, story generation. Um, I, I've used it with my students, but in my humor unit, they were just trying to be funny about it. Um, so that's probably a more narrow approach. But again, it's one of those games where everybody can be involved the whole time. And I think that's so beneficial. Right. Yeah. I think that's, that's definitely maybe one of the top priorities when, when I think about using a game in the classroom is, is there, are there, are there going to be any students that are just not doing anything? And if that's the case, maybe I need to modify it some way so that it can be used. Right. And I think too, especially knowing the abilities of your students, I mean, there's certain things that I like. So for example, you poop your cat, there's a drawing aspect and kids are like, I can't draw. Cool. This will be a fun way for you to practice drawing the world. You know, your hand won't fall off. You'll be okay. Um, But you definitely can have kids who have, you know, very specific disabilities, disorders um, that might, or, you know, might be just a little bit more academically behind their peers. And so if you're doing something where they're, disabilities or inabilities become apparent to others, I think you have to be really careful about how you handle that as far as, you know, what you're going to do to, you know, protect them, to take care of them. Because if they're stressed out and embarrassed, even if everybody else is learning by leaps and gains, I don't know that it's worth it. And so sometimes even just always partnering up kids. So they're always working with a partner and making those groupings, you know, heterogeneous, but also sometimes making those groups um, homogenous, you know, a lot of times, and I'm not saying this is right, especially in a game where there's competition against other people. But if every, if you put kids in groups and each group is doing like their own type of challenge their own type of game, I always ask that people don't just always do heterogeneous groupings. For my gifted kids, a lot of times when that happens, they're always like the ones that are like spread out amongst the other groups. And then they put all those spread out all the middle kids and then they spread out all those sort of low kids. And pardon me for speaking broad brushstrokes, but I am. And so a lot of times they never get chances to work with each other. And one thing that research shows is that when you let kids of similar abilities work with each other, everyone gains because the kids on the middle step it up and the kids on the lower end also step it up. Even if it's like one notch higher, you know, that's okay for them. You know, they're using their abilities and what they know and trying to push themselves up to be more competitive as well. And especially as long as it's not, you know, the board of shame where you're awarding points and, you know, well, everyone knows how they're going to do, you know, I mean, this is tricky to do, but there definitely are times where, you know, everyone deserves to learn at their level every single day. That's just one of those tenants that I just hold. And especially for my students, if they're the ones that are put into groups that, you know, they're there to help or to reteach, that's not learning, that's not appropriate for them. Um, That's your job or that's a teaching assistant's job or whomever else. So this is probably more tangential (laughs) and specific to the kids I work with, but it's also something that they do experience quite a bit sometimes. Can maybe do you have a an experience where you where you realized because I know I have a lot maybe I can share one for me where you mentioned the the leaderboard or the board of shame I guess mm-hmm. you called it and when my wife and I started putting together a, it's kind of a game based toolkit for teachers to use because we gamified her class this mm-hmm. last year it was a high school English language classroom 
and we had used a leaderboard and we quickly realized that was a big mistake when we used it in the class um, because we had one student. A lot of students were, they, I would say the majority of students kind of liked leaderboard, but there was one student who did fall behind and he kind of just yeah. gave up on really participating in the in the game. So do you have any experience of something maybe you could share that that would help? Well, one thing that I always try to emphasize is even when we have, you know, points, points are used to, you know, ultimately communicate your position in the game to other people. And if we're playing a game that is just to be, you know, a review or something like that, I don't care about the points at all. And so what I will often do is even if they get points or one team starts to get a blowout, I will you know, do something where there's like a big, you know, okay, this is a 20 point question. And the kids in the league are like, what? <laughs> you know, and then maybe right, somehow right. I managed to make it so that kids on the other team get those points or I start awarding ridiculous points. I'm like, cool, you just got a puppy. So draw a puppy up there on the scoreboard. You know, and the kid's like, Woo, we got a puppy. <laughs> you know, I mean, because if you focus on that aspect of winning and, you know, that, that, that quantitative, you know, check mark it feeds into a lot of the programming that we've already done with kids as far as you know letter grades and standardized tests and success is a hundred percent and success is you know an a plus is you know and and i think for a lot of my students especially having to sort of break that mentality as far as you do something once you do it very very well you get a very good grade on it and then you move to the next thing you know, a lot of what I do in teaching game design is here is this problem that cannot be solved <laughs> or no, no, I shouldn't say it like that. Here is this problem that you will have to, you have to define the problem. You have to figure out how you're going to solve this problem. You're going to design your tests with these resources in terms of, you know, how close are you to solving this problem? And you're going to do this again and again and again. You're going to make a prototype. You're going to put it in front of other people. You're going to play it. You're going to get their feedback. And then you're going to take those ideas and that, you know, good, bad, the ugly, the hopefully the helpful, and incorporate that into your next design so that when that hits the table, hopefully it's better. And that sort of, you know, thinking of it as an unfinished, unending you know, kind of like hopefully upwardly ascending sort of cascade, you know, of mountains, you know, by having them see that process as a real process, as one that is reflective of what life will be, I think is really important because for a lot of my kids, you know, they've learned what success is and it's an A plus and moving on and trying to show them that if you want to do anything cool, there will never be an A plus. You will never be finished. You will always just have to try to do your right. best to put out your best possible effort, listen to other people, and hopefully make that idea better. And so one that's why I teach game design. I don't they may never ever design a game ever again. I definitely have kids who love it and definitely keep doing this. Um, if I had more of an apparatus for them as far as playtesting their games and getting more feedback and more involvement in the community, I think it would be easier to keep that going, but they're busy and they're always presented with new things. Um, but the reason why I teach game design is it teaches them this process of thinking, design thinking, hands-on doing, trying to create you know problems and solutions and learning how to see success as incremental progress not as a, I finished, I'm done. Because actually we do talk about how you need to be, it can be finished, not perfect. And that's really important for a lot of them. And that you can have something that is unfinished, 
And you can see it as successful because you did try to make it better, even if you don't think it's better. And that's really, really hard for them to accept because it goes against everything they've always done. So in my long winded (laughs) approach to your question, I honestly try to minimize any type of objective points in any kind of game situation as much as possible because no one should ever be blamed for losing for their team. And I honestly don't want anybody to be, you know, the fourth batter to just hit the grand slam home run and they get all the credit, not the people who also got on first, second and third. So that's what I do. Yeah, that's, that's really, really good point. I think, um, going off of what you said with, uh, uh, the review and having points and you just giving the team a cat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there's a really good review game. I think it used to be called the bomb game back in uh, like years ago. It was a on an old ESL language website. And basically each like you create a grid on the whiteboard and the student chooses one of the boxes and it's either a bomb or it's points, but they've evolved that into a PowerPoint. And there's so many different themes like Mario theme, uh, Pokemon hmm. theme, Batman theme. And so what I will do is manipulate the game to where it's like very obvious that the points go up and down, up and down, up and down. Like no one's ever really in the lead mm-hmm. for, for too long. So like maybe a team will get a, it'll get a bomb and their points will erase and then the next team will change points so it's just very it's very up and down back and forth right but right and and i think you know points and having that kind of outcome are a good thing because in the right way you know you want to have some measurement of success in some ways i don't know that a classroom review game is always the best time for that um don't ever (laughs) give extra credit to like kids on a test by how well they did something like that make it its own you know total standalone thing um but yeah i mean sometimes it does make sense to have kids have scoring that matters but i think you have to really ask yourself is this that time you know or can i you know say oh well let's say that like you've got you know, one team has a cat, a dog, and a giraffe, and then the other team finally gets a point. It's like, whoa, you just got yourself a, pretend to look at something, a Porsche. What? You got a fancy car. <laughs> and the value of that fancy car is way more, well, maybe not the giraffe, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you can equalize <laughs> right. things and you can do it in a fun way. Like we are having fun here because if there's anything else I believe it is that you can make, a good teacher can make a lot of things fun. And so much of what I do is a very play-based. And I've, I've been like that. My very first teaching experience, I got hired to be a lifeguard when I was 15 at a residential Girl Scout camp. And I thought, cool, I'm going to sit by the pool. And then I found out that we had to teach swimming and I didn't know how to teach swimming, but my dad was a swimming, diving and water polo coach at his high school. So I learned how to swim by just playing around the water and he would make little corrections here and there. And that's how I learned to swim. So it wasn't like when I had to teach swimming, I had this knowledge of like swim lessons and all the things that we would do. And so it's the summer started off with me, you know, working through the various skills and then making up games for each one so that by the end kids were swimming. I had, and we just, they came to the pool with me and they played games. The outcome was the same. But by turning everything into a game, you know, it had a much, kids were having fun while they were doing it. You know, there was something to work towards, you know, like, oh, I got to kill Shredder. I'm the best Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle or whatever it was. You know what I mean? And so 
I know there's times where, cause I've also taught in the regular classroom. I've taught English. I've taught uh, history for one year. I taught religion. Um, <laughs> the second year I was at the Catholic school, they had somebody else do it. I don't know why, but anyway, so <laughs> separate issue. It was fun though. Um, so I think there's a lot of things that you can do in the classroom that, you know, if kids are having fun, even if it's a bad game. And I think this is where we can start to talk about like how, how, how we can help teachers have kids use games in their classrooms. We can probably, you know, morph over to that subject a little bit more. Um, but, you know, if you're having fun and you're trying to have fun with this, you know, they're so appreciative because there's so many instances where they're not necessarily having as much fun. And if we think about it, kids spend their lives connected. You know, we're kind of at a point right now where in a lot of ways we ask our kids to disconnect themselves from how they live outside of school day. And in a lot of ways, you know, reconnect with this old school, traditional, pretty much unplugged kind of thing. And there's not saying it's a bad thing, but we are presenting kids with a very different way of the world than what they know to be their lives. And so I think, using gamification techniques, games in the classroom, involving games in the classroom is only a good thing because it's definitely a structure that kids know. Yeah, I think that's 100% is one thing that definitely, I guess, I think about a lot as myself and my, my age, I grew up playing a lot of games. So I think there's a lot of teachers our age that are willing to add games to the classroom. And now a lot of kids, that's all they know as well. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing too, because, you know, I think most parents and, and I'm not a parent, but I'm old enough to be one and I have no idea what the kids today are playing. You know, if I did, maybe I would. Um, but I really don't know. And I think a lot of people don't really know what kids are capable of in terms of technology. And I don't, and maybe the answer is that we do need to spend more time in, you know, playing Fortnite or whatever the kids are playing nowadays, you know, maybe. Um, but I think when it comes to different types of games that are out there, you, we need to help people become more confident in designing using game-based structures in their classes. And I think talking about how we have kids... Um, how we have t like all these different party games basically and how you can adapt them to the classroom I think is great. But how did you, when you were doing your work, did you ever spend time with other teachers trying to help them implement games into their classes? Uh, I did a lot this past year at, in Taiwan at Mingchuan. I, I started to do more research into the effects on using games in class and effects on language ability and whether it actually helped mm -hmm. students improve their language by playing the game or by listening to a lecture. Um, so when I did that research, I was able to present on the topic of game-based learning in English language classes and so that gave me the opportunity to share with uh, a lot of teachers and how to how to use games and trap words and illustrations mm -hmm. were two main ones that I had talked about um, I'm trying to remember it's been a while since I've been on I've been on break oh, that's since so nice. July so I'm <laughs> trying to <laughs> rack my brain yeah yeah <laughs> well I mean it's kind of been a break but it's a lot of moving moving back from Taiwan and visiting family so um, let me think of the other ones um let's see i did code names a little bit but then when trap words came out i when trap words came out i realized that was a little bit more appropriate and i 
preferred mm-hmm. using that one over code names. Um, let's see, I've done pandemic. That actually works really well in an English corner where the students had to pair up with someone. So it was eight people playing or actually we only had, I think seven. So I think one person was on their own team and then everyone else had a partner. And so they had to communicate to each other first before deciding what actions mm-hmm. they would have to take in the game. So there was a bunch of output on the language like we should go to new york which is a great like grammar structure and phrase for them to learn or no don't do that because um conditional statements so it was really good for that and i think i only did it once and i i because i was just running out of time and it was towards the end of the semester and english corner was kind of coming to an end but Looking back, I, I wish I would have had them debrief after and kind of write down some of the phrases they used in the game and see if they could remember some yeah, of the things they said. That's really cool. I like, uh, especially, I didn't even think about, um, I didn't think about code names at all. And the nice thing about code names too is you can have like any number of people really playing it. And if you put words on cards, you can set them up in the little grid system uh, and then go from there. And again, it's like all those different types of associations and other ways that they can try to build connections between various ideas. Huh? Like, yeah. And I did, I now now you're just reminding me that, uh, I believe I was talking to a teacher and they had, uh, mentioned that you can ask the students to create the grid for a code name. So that's an extra layer of, uh, retention oh, cool. of whatever you're reviewing or the concepts you're trying to learn. See, and this gets to why I love, podcasting about games and education so much is I get so many good ideas from all the people that I've talked to on all different avenues, all different types of practices, levels, content that I just don't get, you know, when I'm just working within my building with it. And I work with amazing, phenomenal people, but they're not necessarily gamers. They don't think in terms of games and, you know, get, just coming together and sharing these ideas. That's why I was really excited when you, when I saw you put out that you were looking for guests for the show and I said, Hey, we should do like a joint broadcast, you know, because I think if this helps people become aware of your podcast, if it helps people become aware of my podcast, then it just keeps helping to expand what people know. And then other people say, Oh, you should listen to this. They talked about this. They talked about this because a lot of questions people have for me often is like, how can I, it's either how can I take this content and turn it into a game and or also like what games are out there that I could use with my classroom. And I think people are always looking for different ways, especially to take, you know, something simple that they can do and implement it, which is why I think party games are so great for that, for sure. Yeah, I think party games mm-hmm. and collaborative games are huge. And you mentioned that it was great. We do this. I, I love the space that we're in, mm-hmm. the, the podcasting space, board game space, and teaching space. It's like <laughs> the three best right. communities yeah. I think you can ask. It is. And, and and I think especially when, you know, I meet people who I then, you know, just even like in a sentence or two, I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to have you on the show. Do you know what it means? It means I get to pin them down and hammer them with questions for an hour, (laughs) you know, on things I want to know more about and how they do what they (laughs) do. And it's so rare. I mean, so for example, I had Luke Laurie on the show, who's a game designer who's done a number of things. And um, it was really funny because he said that he's on podcasts a lot to talk about his work with game design, but he's not really ever on very much to talk about his work as an educator. But 
a lot. So a lot of the work that he does with games in his classrooms has to do with more like incentive systems um, and sort of like gamification techniques in terms of like his classroom management, which I thought was really interesting. But then also it ended up being a whole conversation about, you know, some of the struggles that I have when I do what I do and him offering some really good suggestions that like are still kind of like pinging through my head. Like maybe I should try this, you know? And I think, you know, we're all making this up, you know, there are no standards for like what kids should know in terms of games and game design at any single level, you know, we're all making up like what's the best way to do this. And sometimes, especially when you do anything with games in the classroom, they won't work. Games won't work. An idea will fall flat. And I think if you're playing like a review game with kids, you're probably pretty protected. But if you're wanting to do something where student output in terms of games is expected, you know, you're going to get a range. You know, I've got kids who really, really, really struggle when the outcome isn't made 100% clear. And even when I say you will get an A in this class, like, Put that out of your mind. You know what I mean? If you are trying to do your best at any given day and you can communicate to me what you're doing, your grade will be fine. And if I had my choice, I wouldn't do grades at all. But this is the world we live in. And I have to actually tried. We tried one year to not give out grades in our gifted class. And that was a there's some unintended consequences there. But there you go. We tried it once. As much as we wanted it to work, it didn't really work um, and is more. Anyway, that's a long story. But anyway, so, yeah, I kind of even forgot where it was going because I was just rambling about a whole bunch of different exciting things all at once. <laughs> well, I mean, you did mention like how, mm. how the doing the podcast is great for you and like learning new ideas and coming up with new uh, ideas. And for me, just talking to you now, it made me realize what would be great to have out there. Maybe it already is out there is, is a list of characteristics of games that would be good for your classroom so for example we talked about uh making sure everyone's involved so like if a game has that characteristic that might be a good option to use in your classroom if a game has a catch-up mechanic that would be a good option or some other ideas that a game should include or you should think about that if it has that whether yeah i think uh, i'd be happy to collaborate with you on this so i can certainly put it on the website because this is something that people do ask you know and like i said the other and this going back to what i was saying before my many topics. But uh, when people want me to create a game for their classroom, um, it's not as easy as it sounds, you know, I mean, especially doing game design. And if I was a better game designer, I could probably come up with something simpler. But sometimes, like I remember it was photosynthesis. And, you know, it's they, and the, th- the nice thing about photosynthesis is it's a system with kind of repeating cycles of things. And when you have a system, you can gamify elements in that system in terms of like gamify how they get access to the resources or gamify the process by which they put things together or the order that they put things together. And I was really excited to work on this game uh, on photosynthesis. And I just, my life got busy and the amount of time that I had to work on this in addition to everything else, I just couldn't do. And I felt so bad because I was excited to do this and I ended up just looking online and I found a game and it had like a simple kind of dice rolling thing. Not necessarily what modern gamers, modern gamers get really fussy when you roll for resources. I don't know if you know this, um, which is like one of the arguments that I have with people about Catan all the time, but whatever. <laughs> anyway, um, I found a game. It wasn't necessarily great. It wasn't necessarily what I would put together, but it was still like a game. 
and the kids had fun playing it. And then they, they, you know, moved all their little molecules around to create photosynthesis. And so it was close enough to what the teacher was wanted that they still played a game where they still talked about it. And I think that's one thing that's important for teachers is, you know, our time is so precious and we have so much to do and so little time to do it. We have more to do than what we can do in the amount of time. And so the idea of something not working out as well as you want it to can be really prohibitive. I could try to play this game and hope they get it, or I can just stand in front of the room and I can tell them all those things. And I know that they will have gotten the information that I want them to get. And so I think I just, you know, you always want to encourage and like, and and I'm always happy to try to keep figuring out ways to help teachers use games in the classroom, everything from what we just talked about all the way to like when you have students design games themselves, there's lots of different ways you can have, you can have them do this. You can have kids, you know, change the rules of an existing game, like have them, you know, take away any kind of randomizer for Candyland, Sorry, Life, you know, take away the randomizer. And then how can you have them have players make choices that determine their placement on the board? You know, you can have them add new rules to various games. How can you have Uno end in 10 cards or less, which would be my dream. Um, you know, just even having them play around with rules of existing games. And then, you know, when, when kids design games in classrooms, a lot of times they look like the games they know, Trivial Pursuit, Monopoly, Candyland. And, you know, and when kids only have access to those games, those are the types of things that they come up with. But if you want to do game design in the classroom, you know, you can give them sort of carte blanche like I do, but I don't give them carte blanche from the start. That's horrifying. You know, it's a the blank piece of paper nightmare. But I spend a lot of time, and granted, I have a semester. Not everybody has this, but I have a, a semester. So we spend a lot of time just playing games and learning about the different mechanics that are in the games and which mechanics they like. And they have to just play a lot of games in order to get a sense of, like, get ideas, basically, on what they can put into their game. And then their first games aren't going to work. And you have to prepare them for that, but also not squash their expectations too much. It's a very delicate dance. Like, hey, some things are going to work out well. Some things aren't going to work out well, but everything is a growth opportunity and let's talk about it. You know, so when it comes to having kids design games in the classroom, the only thing I would say is like, if you can have kids put players in positions where they can make some choices and try to minimize the use of randomizers or modify the use of randomizers. So if there's going to be dice in the game, maybe they can choose which dice they roll they could have different colors they could have different things where at least the players have some sort of like agency over what they're doing it's not i rolled a one cool you rolled a six great you're winning you're you know six times is <laughs> made more progress than i and that's no fun for anybody you know so <laughs> it can be hard but remember designing lessons and game design are so similar as a game designer myself. I can say this, you know, when you've got a game, you're like, what's the experience I want players to have? What's the goal of this game? Well, that's what's the experience you want your students to have and what's the objective of the lesson. And then you come up with something and you try it and it works out. There's some things that you would do better. You make changes to it. So when you do it again, you can tweak that and you can improve on that. And it's, it takes work. Like it's hard to do. There's nothing about it that's easy. But I think if you're wanting the creative challenge to really push and stretch yourself, you know, 
my students are so tolerant of when I'm trying something new with them. And I say, this is the first time I've ever done this. And I want your feedback in terms of what worked for you, what didn't work for you. And the more even that you have them do that, they get better at articulating their ideas and putting them forward. So um, don't be afraid to try if you can. Yeah, I think a lot of what you said can kind of go back to teachers using using the games in their class too, or deciding what games to to use in class. As you mentioned, that you play a lot of games with your students. I think if teachers want to use any games, they also need to play a lot of games themselves. Yeah. So, um, do, have you? Uh, are there any limits or restrictions that you ever put on students in terms of games in your classes? Um, I, what do you mean exactly? I guess like, uh, as far as games that they, that I would not bring to class. Well, I would say more like rules as far as when you have kids, I mean, maybe not cause you, you would teach college level and I teach middle school. So there's <laughs> probably very different approaches. Well, okay. Let me reframe the question then. Was there anything that surprised you about using games in the classrooms with the students that you were working with? Um, that's, that's a better question, but a more difficult question. I guess when I first gamified my class, um, or no, let me take that back. I can't remember now. Oh my gosh. Was it, it was either the first semester or the second semester, but it was the first time. Cause I always, I always use some games in my, in my, throughout the course of the semester or, like in my lessons. And so one semester, whether it was the first semester last year or the second semester of last year, I can't remember, but I actually had a couple of students say that we played too many games. <laughs> and oh, usually, funny. usually at the end of the semester, the recommendation, the feedback is to play more games because for language learning, I think there's a unique advantage to where just about anything we do that's game related. I mean, you could argue there's different uh, different efficient, there's more efficient games than others, but any game that I do use, there is some language element to it. Mm -hmm. So there's some sort of input or output of language learning if I use a game in class. So it's more refining the ones that work more or work better than others. But that was kind of a, a surprise, I guess, because I, I, I didn't think I used too many that semester, but maybe it was just a couple of students that you know, maybe didn't enjoy some of the games or yeah. I didn't make it clear what the reason for doing the game in class was, or oh, maybe they, point. I miscommunicated that. So it could have been a couple different things, but usually students are happy to do the games. And usually that's the feedback at the end of the semester is like, I really like the games. You should do more games. And so I was a little yeah. surprised at that this last year. Well, and I think too, sometimes, you know, when it comes to, you know, college classes, when, yeah, if the expectations aren't clear or if, you know, you're kind of in that mode where you're just like, give me the information so I can know it and just spit it back to you. Obviously, right. games, re games require engagement, you know what I mean? And maybe they're just right. like, you know, they'd had a day <laughs> and they were just like ready. But I think that's, you know, that's interesting because especially, you know, one thing that kind of drives me crazy a little bit. And this is a bigger problem, but, you know, when I see teachers' classrooms, like even now where I have, 
you know, so 12, 13, 14 year old kids and I'll walk past the teacher's classroom and they'll have games in there that are meant for much younger kids in there, you know, like even like Candyland or sorry or something like that. And then, so it's like on the rare at times where they may have kids where ha- they have some time to play a game, you know, always just trying to get teachers to, you know, ha- put better games in their classes. And that's hard because then you, ha- you have to teach them, you know, to expect, non-gamers to just pick up a game and read it and use it and implement it is tough to do. So I'm always trying to, you know, expand what they know in terms of games so that they can implement better games. It's funny because when you're talking about with the, the language differences and stuff like that and the speaking components, it made me think about this summer I went to UK Games Expo and I was demoing the game Medium, uh, which is a really fun party game. So we probably need to figure out a way to use that one too. Really fun <laughs> party game from Greater Than Games. Um, who I was working with. And the funny thing was, so you basically have a word, um, each part, there's, you know, you go head to head. And so each person has a word, like, let's say I have Japan and you have monster, right? And um, so we have to basically look at our words and then we have to try to come up with a word that's right in between them. So we look into each other's eyes and like one, two, three, what word, what word do you think is like conceptually between monster and, and Japan? What would you say? So I have I can I only have monster though. Yeah, no, or you I would know see both. both. You would see right? both. Maybe maybe kaiju. Okay, right. So people either usually say like kaiju or they say Godzilla. You know, somebody's gonna be like super clever and be like Mothra. And you're like, all right, fine. You know, whatever. Right. But so they say something like that, and so then we say, okay, so I said Godzilla, you said kaiju. Now we have to figure out what's the word in between these two words. And so it doesn't matter what we said uh, before. You just can't repeat them in any way. So now if we said kaiju. And I said Godzilla, then we have to come up with a new term. So here, so you think of a new word between them? We're playing this game right now. Maybe rep, reptile, reptile. Okay. Okay. So well, I was going to say one, two, three, but it's fine. I didn't make that clear. Uh, sorry. <laughs> no, so that's all right. Mine was going to be laser, right? So now it's our okay. third and final try. We have to try to come up with a word that's between reptile and laser. And I, uh, uh. right, exactly. This is so. Yeah. But it's weird though, because sometimes like people have these two crazy words and um, two crazy words, and you know you never know what they come up with. I forget what the what the pairing was at UK Games Expo, but uh, it was like mirror and something else, and so uh, mirror and bread, and so the one guy okay. said something like that, and so the other guy said like larb. It was his word, and like we're like, what does larb mean? He's like, it's bread backwards. <laughs> you know, it's like, or whatever it was, or like drawer or whatever it was. That's like good. it was, it was so funny. Um, but the one thing that I really like, especially for, um, when I was in the UK is, you know, people talk about like British people feeling embarrassed or whatever else culturally or, you know, okay, fine. But, um, if people didn't know what they were going to say, if they didn't have a word, they would say nothing instead of just say something like say celery. Cause as long as you give a word, the game can progress. It doesn't matter anymore. If it doesn't exist, you don't have to worry about getting it right you want to get it right, but you just also just have to say a word and people wouldn't say a word if they didn't like, well, I didn't know what to say. It's like, (laughs) say, say salary. You know what I mean? So it was kind of interesting. Those are like little cultural differences um, when it came to like teaching the game. But that's another one actually that probably would have some really good applications too in the classroom, especially when anything that you can have people do at the same time is always a good thing. And sometimes there comes a time where like having people like, you know, perform on their own, you know, that can be totally fine too, because sometimes it's nice for people to not always constantly have to be on sometimes. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I can already see that being a, a great 
like science mm-hmm. game to review different concepts. Oh yeah, or terms. yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, and 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 you, yeah. Oh, you know, one other one that I want to mention, actually, if we're going to talk about this, and I'm supposed to have them on the show, um, the game Flux, which a lot of people are aware of. Um, you know, it's got like crazy rules that can constantly change. They also make a series, and this, I'll have them on an, an upcoming episode. But they make this game where you, it's basically print on demand, where you can upload like a word bank and have the cards printed. And so it's something that as you play cards, you know, kids, you know, you can have them like look for pairs or look for um, whatever else you're doing, but they've got this really interesting game. So this is not really helpful since I'm speaking of it in such (laughs) generalities, but, um, but it's another way that you can like, basically it's a game structure that, you'll be able to import your own concepts, have your own cards printed and it can be everything from math facts to words or whatever else pictures even. So that'll be in a future episode. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So, and I love that there's more of like that attention on games in the classroom. One of my newest roles is that I'm on gamma's education advisory committee. And there's a bunch of different aspects to this, you know, in terms of like for manufacturers being able to educate distributors and retailers about what happens on the manufacturing side. So there aren't necessarily surprises or, you know, there's misunderstandings when it comes to the retailer side, but especially for the games and education side, a lot of times there are people who like, Oh, I'd love to have teachers play this game. Yes, I bet you would. And I would love for them to be able to play it. But there are a series of significant obstacles towards doing that. So, you know, like what are the things that games and game companies should do or could do to get themselves into the classroom more? You know, what are the types of things that teachers are looking for in terms of games in the classroom? And so I'm excited to see where that goes in terms of um, creating opportunities for gamers, game designers. I mean, it'd be cool if you could just have... Like, and I, this is an idea I'll suggest, so who knows, may go nowhere, but it would be cool if you could have a classroom game design competition, like design a game for the classroom, you know, like it would have to play up to 25 people, you know, it would have to do like various things and it would be really cool to see what people would come up with. So it wasn't just, we are taking a game that is used for one purpose and, you know, reconfiguring it for our own purposes. But it'd be really nice if you could say, you know, what would be really cool is if you could have this happen in the game, you know, and then it's somewhere that you could apply it to all different contexts. So that'd be kind of a fun thing. Yeah. I think, I think that's, I, I think that's what's really key is uh, collaborating among the community of teachers that have used games in education and kind of, figuring out how or what works and creating a streamlined process for it. So a teacher can kind of look at this, maybe this handbook that's already been, been created through all the fails and failures and successes Mm -hmm. of other teachers. Yeah. And I think too, then, you know, when it's just because I've had people approach me say, Hey, I've got this game. I'd really love to have it played. Well, it's like something that might be so content specific that I, you know, I'd have to teach this content in order for them to play this game. And I don't know that I can do that. I don't know that I want to do that. I don't know that I have time to do that, you know? And so even to have, you know, better resources out there as far as what games are out there and what content they teach so that people can use um, games in the class that they would want to use. I mean, there's so many opportunities, I think, when it comes to gaming in the classroom that it's just exciting that you and I, like are getting to talk to people who are helping to make that happen. I agree 100%. And I'm, I'm a happy, I'm happy we've been able to get together yeah, to talk about this too. Well, 
in, I guess, well, the one last thing as we sort of wrap things up, is there anything that you have in your mind as far as a goal that you would like to accomplish next when it comes to games in the classroom and what you're trying to do? I think that something you touched on and I've been kind of throwing around in my head is, is creating some sort of database where teachers are teaching a unit on something and they can go on there and see what kind of games they can use in their class to either tackle review or tackle previewing concepts of the whatever material they're learning. It would be really good for teachers to find like a resource where they can just go to and save time and kind of have this lesson plan that they can use. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's tricky because there's some games too, where it's like, I'd always want them to buy the game, you know, don't just like take the ideas right. from it. But on the other hand, I also know the realities too of education. So especially for any kind of like older game, you know, public domain game, like monikers is another really good example where you put basically everyone writes on a card, like a person or an idea and then you shuffle them up and then you deal them to teams and then you kind of have to like go through them and get everybody to guess, you know, by what you're saying or what clues you're giving to guess what's on that term. Like that's another really great one that could be used in the classroom. Um, well, that might be, that's a whole other, yeah, that's really cool. That's a good idea. I mean, how about you? How about you? Um, for me, the thing that I really need to do is I really need to look at the curriculum that I have and formalize it a little bit in terms of uh, standards that it's meeting. That's something that people ask me about that I don't really ever have had to do. And I think it's something that I'm interested in one, because I want to make it even easier for people to use these resources in their classroom. But I also um, I'm really like thinking about the idea of like, you know, kind of like standards, not necessarily in like must be able to, but what are the things that people could do to get their kids to think like game designers, to use design thinking, using games, what would be appropriate, you know, at the early elementary level, the later elementary level, the middle school level, the high school level, you know, what are the, like the different things you could have kids do so that if somebody wants to do something with game design in the classroom, they've got a better chance of success that they're not overshooting or undershooting what their kids are able to do, but also in terms of tying this, you know, more specifically to actual curriculum, you know, then it could be easier for their administrators to use, especially when you show, look at all these different things that this can do, because it's such a comprehensive unit in terms of everything from, you know, steam to, you know, everything under the sun, you know, like there's a research component, a writing component, technical writing, prototyping, you know, there's so many different things to it. And especially the more I can articulate that I think will help other teachers. So that's kind of my big project for the year is to formalize uh, the, the curricular writing aspect of it for sure. Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's really important to have, especially like even when we're talking about using games is how do they align to the standards too. One goal that I had uh, thought about, or I plan to do, and maybe any of your listeners want to reach out is in LA, we plan to create a meetup sometime for teachers to meet up and talk about using Mm -hmm. game-based learning and then play some games afterwards. So that's a very short-term goal that hopefully will be happening. Yeah, and I know some good people out there that I can put you in contact with who I think would be amazing assets for this. Awesome. (laughs) Well, we probably need to wrap this up because we've been going on and it's all been, I mean, I feel like we could talk on all these. There's, I mean, we talked on so many different things and some things we could talk a lot more on and some we could talk even more on, but I think at some point we probably need to stop. Um, So Dustin, where can people find you if they want to know more about what you're doing? 
where on the internet? Boardgamewitheducation.com or any any social media like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It's either boardgamingwitheducation or BGE underscore games. Um, or my email, the email is podcast at boardgamingwitheducation.com. Cool. You can find me at kathleenmercury.com where you can send me emails directly. You can also find me on Twitter at, at mercury with seven M. So at mercury, um, not on Instagram because one of my students calls it uh, basically uh, board games, my dogs and me with too much makeup on when he's not necessarily wrong on that. <laughs> but um, I'm also on Board Game Geek as Funk Donut. And I really hope that if if I've said anything that's of interest to you that you want to uh, do more with, please, please, please feel free to reach out, contact me. I love helping people, figuring out how they can take what I'm doing, modifying it and making it work for them in their classrooms. And so please reach out. Everything is for free. Take it, make copies, do it better than I. Tell me how you did it on an episode of Games in Schools and Libraries. Really awesome. I'm excited. Hopefully uh, listeners to your show will discover our podcast and hopefully listeners to our show will discover your podcast. So really cool. Sure. And I'm always looking for people who are doing something cool with games to be on the show and uh, let me hammer away with you with nosy little questions. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you again. Thank you, Dustin. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast. You can find out more about us and the people who create this show over at InverseGenius.com and all of our other wonderful, wonderful shows, including on board games, on RPGs, the Inverse Genius podcast, and the Room Escape Divas. We are also now joined by the Party Gamecast and Nephilop, who you might remember as Stephanie, previous co-host here on the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast, and our friend, Lynn Theory. Thank you for listening. Games in Schools and Libraries is produced in association with the Georgetown County Library System.